Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Wow, good morning. Happy Easter. We were assessing the crowds. You know, Saturday has a certain feel to it. Sunday morning, the early service has a, you're the lazy group. Just thought I'd tell you. Yes, that I tell you. The total chill group. That's what we're dealing with today. Uh, We're really glad you're here. Going to do something different this year than we normally do. We're actually going to start a series um, called The Borderlands of Belief. I'm borrowing this phrase from a book I read years ago by Philip Yancey. And at the beginning of his book, he he just tells you who he's writing for. And... uh, He kind of explains the visual a little bit like this. He says, in regions of conflict, armies on both sides patrol their respective borders. So you could see it from his perspective, there's belief and unbelief, each sort of have their own border. And in between is this disputed territory, what he calls no man's land. Uh, This is kind of the buffer zone. Uh, And he says, spiritually, some people live in that buffer zone where uh, they don't belong to either side. They don't necessarily fully believe. They don't necessarily fully disbelieve. I'd like to suggest that whether you, even if you find yourself on one side or the other, uh, there's good reason for you to look a little closer at what you believe or what you don't believe and let me, let me put it to you this way. Perhaps you're one of those who believe, but you would say, my faith's not very strong. In other words, sometimes I feel like I'm holding on for dear life. That could be you. Uh, or maybe you're on the side of unbelief because you don't think uh, faith makes sense in the culture that we live in today. And what I want to do is challenge both of you. So we're going to start a series that's going to go through the gospel of John. And we're going to consider what it means to believe. And whether or not what I believe or do not believe makes sense with the life I'm living. Now John uses the verb believe 100 times, almost 100 times which is like three times more than the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, combined. And so he's kind of an expert. He actually says at the end of his book, uh, this thing sort of gives you his purpose so you know why he's writing. He says, Jesus performed many miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, many more than I could ever record in the book I'm writing. But then he says this, But these are recorded. In other words, I've taken certain signs that Jesus did and I've put them together so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So John tells you his purpose and that he's orchestrated, sort of carefully uh, selected certain things Jesus did to help bring a person along in faith. So maybe you're on the side of unbelief and you've never, had a, you've never been a believer of any sort. And John would say to you, I could give you a starting point for faith. And then for those of you on the other side, you, may, you might say you believe, but your faith is, you would consider your faith fragile. John would say, I can, we can strengthen that faith and that belief. So that's what we're gonna do in this series. And here's the thing, the offer, here's the offer is life. If the offer is life, then it's worth considering what I believe and whether or not my beliefs really are consistent with the life that I, that I want, that I hope for, that I actually live. So, if the, author is li- or if the offer is life in all its dimensions and belief, John says, leads to life, And John will tell you that that life is a gift that comes through the work 
and the person of Jesus Christ. So if you'll join us in this series, which by the time this is finished, I hope you'll want to challenge your own beliefs and your own doubts by the time you leave today. So this past weekend, Gail and I, uh, for 199 bucks, were able to stay at a hotel and spa in San Antonio for three nights and four days. But you had to listen to that vacation presentation. <laughs> so I was totally dreading it. Gail was fine with it. We walked in a room about halfway through this trip. Uh, our scheduled time, we walked into this room that would hold about 50 people, but there was only 12 of us in there all scattered around. It was just sort of a, just a miserable dynamic. And Gail says to me, you, you, you need to wipe that look off your face. <laughs> and I didn't want to. She was excited and happy. Sometimes, you know, just between us, her happiness is just hard to deal with. It's just hard to deal with. And so, uh, you know, we had to introduce ourselves, which she was all excited about. And then, uh, you know, she would raise her hand and call out and answer, you know, things. And I'm like, Gail, please, God. So an hour and 15 minutes, this guy's got to speak to us. And then after that, we got to go out for another hour and 15 minutes for, you know, the the other, you know, one-on-one counseling thing, which I needed by the time I was done, but not on their topic. Uh, Anyway, this is the worst audience. This guy walks in, (laughs) he's well-dressed, you know, sharp guy, walks in, and he's about to speak to the worst audience you've ever had to speak to in your life. Uh, Nobody wanted to be there, but he was enthusiastic, he was confident, he was funny. He went through the history of the company, it's called Blue Green Vacation. He talked about the awards that the company has won that made sure we understood that this is not a timeshare on a, you know, that you get this, you know, you get one or two weeks a year. This is something you own. It's a deed that you get. Uh, he talked about his core beliefs, why he works for this company, uh, and why he believes that what he is sharing is vital to us. He did an analysis on vacations that Americans take, and we fared poorly, especially in comparison to other countries where you're required to take vacation. Uh, it was very interesting. Then he went through a whole big stress thing and how it's an, you know, one of the top killers of people. And then he said, and you know, Monday's the most common day for heart attack. And I was like, man, he's really gotten us worked up. And that means for you guys, tomorrow could be it. And then he went through all the financial calculations that were really interesting that he did. Uh, And then he made us close our eyes and imagine being somewhere. I was home. (laughs) That's where I was. Gail was in Greece. We were worlds apart. Uh, But this guy, I got to hand it to him. Really, hour and 15 minute talk. Worst audience, I was as skeptical as anybody. By the time he was done, he made me want to hear what they're going to say because he got us right to the edge, didn't tell us what was going to happen. You didn't know, and you got to go out there to the counselor. He made me actually curious about what they're actually going to offer. And I even thought about saying, I wonder if he's available to do the Easter sermon here at Hillside because I think people would come back because this guy's that good. And it made me think of John. And, you know, what I was thinking about, because John does the same thing to some degree as it relates to belief. He, he makes you want to think about it enough because the offer's so good. Life. In fact, notice what he says. Just go back to these verses. I've recorded a certain amount of signs that I think will help you believe. He uses it twice and tells you that if you do believe, you'll live. And he makes a connection that you and I connect all the time. Your beliefs and your unbeliefs dictate how you do life and how you think about life. Hopes, dreams, all of it. They they cannot be separated. Right now, even though you haven't given a whole lot of conscience, maybe you haven't. Uh, Because we need to analyze these two words. But it's very possible that I've thought more about vacations now than you've thought about your beliefs or your unbeliefs. 
and how they relate to one another. So we need to do an analysis of this word believe and this word life. And John is definitely going to help us with it. And the question is, are they consistent? And if that's the offer, then, then it's, it's got to be worth hearing. Uh, some time ago, I listened to a debate. You might have seen it. It was called The Psychology of Belief. And it was subtitled, Do We Need God to Make Sense of Life? So it had the belief and life in it. Great topic. This was uh, a debate between uh, Jordan Peterson and Susan Blackmore. Jordan Peterson is the psychologist, sort of popular figure right now. Uh, He is a psychologist. He's a professor at University of Toronto. He is not a Christian, most definitely, but he is not an atheist. He's an interesting sort of guy Very interesting. And then you have uh, Susan Blackmore, who is an evolutionary biologist. And she's an author and a writer. And she's an atheist. Self-proclaimed. And um, so they're having this debate about belief and life. And she is adamant that as an unbeliever and someone who believes that God shouldn't be on anyone's lips. He should never be mentioned. He should never be talked about. No one needs him. There is no meaning in life. And she's trying her best to be consistent with that belief and say, there is no meaning in the world and in life, uh, is what she writes. And she's adamant about it to the point where she literally says at a certain point in the debate, if I wake up tomorrow morning, and a tsunami or, or, or some catastrophe has occurred and wiped out thousands and thousands of people. I just grab my coffee cup and I drink it. And I say, doesn't mean a thing. And I get on with my day. That's her trying to be consistent with her belief. Now, Jordan Peterson spent the rest of the time poking holes in her thinking and showing her where she does try to find meaning, even though she doesn't realize she's doing it. She wakes up some mornings and she's grateful and she doesn't know why. She just sees green outside and loves it and she's grateful and Jordan Peter says, well, who are you grateful to? You gotta be grateful to something. And then she'll say something like, well, like my favorite thing to do all day is to write. I think writing is my best thing. So writing her books is what she lives for. And there are things she talked about there, the purpose that she finds. And and he pointed out, no, that's meaning. And what what you learn in the debate is it's very difficult to live consistently with unbelief. It's very, very, very difficult. Uh, C.S. Lewis was the one who said that if there were no meaning in the world, I should never have found out. It's one of my favorite lines of his. And then Tom, Tom Nagel, who is a, a sort of a philosopher and modern-day atheist as well, is really honest about this. One of the things I appreciate about him is he says, you know, in order for me to get by with my position in unbelief, uh, I have to make sure I don't think too much about the universe that I live in. Because he says, sometimes meaninglessness will break in on you. And it will just wreck you internally. What a way to live. But that's what somebody does who's trying to live consistently with their belief that God isn't here. Now, what philosophers call what Susan Blackmore did and sometimes what Thomas Nagel struggles with, and I think all, I shouldn't say all, but I'll say many atheists do, is philosophers say that the unbelievers end up borrowing that's their term, from believers to get meaning in life because they've just sort of because they hold this materialist, naturalist position that there's nothing outside the physical universe. There's no way to, uh, to, to get meaning beyond it. And yet it's very difficult to live a life that way. And so what they end up having to do is in their daily life borrow from believers in order to get a little meaning, in order to make you want to wake up every day or to explain some of the things happening to you. Now, another writer I read in an excellent book, Joseph Minnick, wrote a book called Enduring Divine Absence. It's a, it's, a, it's a fine piece of work, but he goes so far as to say they're not borrowing, they're cheating. That unbelievers are cheating 
from believers in order to get meaning in their life. And the basic premise is, are your beliefs consistent with your life? Have you ever held them up and looked at them? And do they hold up to the reality and the experiences that you really have in everyday life? Well, I'd like to explore this whole concept with you in a series. And that's going to take us back to John this morning. Because I think John's going to give us a kind of psychology of belief. Uh, Or you might say unbelief. A psychology of unbelief as well. Uh, You might prefer to say a theology of belief or unbelief. And he's going to do it by looking at sort of the center of Christianity, which is a historical event. It's a historical event, which means we can all gather around and look at it. That's the difference between Christianity and other religions. It's based on a historical event. It's not based on a book. It's not based on a philosophy. It's not even based on a teacher. It's based on something that either did or didn't happen. That's what he's saying. And so that's the resurrection. That's what Christianity is based on. So that's, what we're, that's why we're here today. And I want us to think through this. Now, in order to do it, before we do it, you need to look at something Jesus said after the resurrection. Something he says to Thomas. Now, something he says to Thomas after the resurrection. Remember, Thomas was the guy who said, I'm not going to believe unless I see. And so Jesus sort of, you know, in a unique way in John 20, accommodates him. Shows up in the room and appears to Thomas. And this is what he says to Thomas. Do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. This is the theme of John's book, how to move you, how to understand both of these, unbelief and belief. And he says, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Now, this is a profound question I don't think we even begin to understand, but hopefully by the time we're done, we will. Blessed are the people, Jesus says, who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, you hear that in our culture, and you got to, what does Jesus mean by that? Because here's what he doesn't mean, and here's what John is going to make sure you understand by the time you're done reading his book, is that John does not mean, hey, Thomas, don't continue in your unbelief. Believe. Well, how do you do that? What, what was it? How do you make the move? Uh, blessed are the people who just don't think. They just leap. You just take a leap, John. You just, hey, you, you, your faith fragile? You're struggling to believe? Stop that nonsense and just have more faith. John would say, oh no, that's not what Jesus means. And that's not what it means to believe. What does he mean? Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, writes this. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Faith, being belief, that isn't based on evidence, is the principal vice of any religion. So this is the modern day's picture of faith. There's no evidence. There's there's nothing to examine. You just leap, and that's their problem with it. And it sounds like Jesus is saying that, but John is going to say, no, 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 that's not what Jesus is saying at all. That's why, actually Sam Harris, which I read his book, and I got to tell you, that's tough to choke down. Sam Harris is a modern day atheist. He's really smart. He's a neuroscientist. And he wrote a book called The End of Faith a few years back. And, um, uh, and he says this about religious beliefs. They float entirely free of reason and evidence. And it sounds like Jesus saying, eh, forget evidence, just leap. But that's not true. And John is going to show you why. And I want you to know why. Christianity is different. It requires you to think. Um, that's why the resurrection is so important. That's why Easter is so important. Because, it's, because there's something you can, you, you can examine. There's evidence. You can consider eyewitness testimony. You can consider the documents. You're not left to wishful thinking. John does not want you to close your eyes 
and jump. He doesn't want you to imagine. He doesn't want you to think that the disciples saw some illusion or some fantasy or some vision that they demanded as much evidence as you would have if you lived in that time. And there's good reason to believe that. So John is going to give us what, I, what is without question the most detailed view of the resurrection because of this very reason. He wants you to look closely at the event, examine the eyewitnesses and how they looked into it and picture yourself doing the same thing. And then he wants you to learn the process of believing. How do you go from unbelief to belief? And I think he's going to tell us two things. Number one, be smart and look at the evidence. Examine it. Christianity affords you that, unlike any other religion. Second thing he's going to say is, it won't be enough. Something else has to happen. Some kind of encounter has to happen. It's a little more mystical. Well, let's look at it. So, the story in John 20 is Mary coming to the tomb on Sunday morning. Day three. She's on her way to the tomb, probably to, to do what you would imagine, is just add more spices to the body since the burial was fast. He was wrapped, there were spices, but she wanted to anoint him more. At least the other gospels tell us that. So she gets there and the stone is rolled away and that is like startling to her. And so she looks in, she doesn't really go in, but she looks in, she sees just barely the clothes, the grave clothes laying there, but no bodies there. And so she sort of makes the same assumption you and I would make, even though she heard Jesus say it over and over and over that he would rise again. That's not what crossed her mind, nor would it have crossed ours. You assume the body's been stolen. Stones rolled away, clothes are still there, body's not, somebody took him. She's just normal like you and me. And it's it's interesting and I think lends itself to the credence of the gospels that they're not legend in that not only were they written early, too early to be legend, you can't make stuff up if it's close to the event. So they're too early to be legend and plus the information in it, it, the fact that women are the ones who discover, all four gospels have women Discover the empty tomb and meet Jesus before the men do. And if you were going to make this up, you would never have the women do that. The women, it was a misogynist sort of culture. Women weren't even given the ability to testify in a courtroom. That's why around the end of the second century, Celsus, who was one of the sort of like the first um, antagonist, if you will, to Christianity, you know, intelligent antagonist to Christianity. This was his biggest problem. Women wouldn't have found him. And so he literally says, how can anyone expect a rational man to listen to the hysterical testifying of a female? Well, that's offensive. He'd have been hung up and strung today. Okay? But that was the kind of culture they lived in. So if you were making the story up and you wanted people to believe it, you'd never let women be the ones who found it. And so you can see, even the way the story's laid out, The preponderance of evidence is that this is not legend. So anyway, she runs to get Peter and John because she's frantic over the fact that somebody's stolen the body. Well, she goes to get Peter and John and they're funny and you're gonna get a lot of detail from them. They're amazing characters in the story John uses to give you detail about the resurrection. No other gospel writer does. And the details are important because John is gonna say there's an element of belief and faith that requires, that needs you to think about what you would do if you saw what they saw. That there's a rational side to faith. That there is evidence to look at. Not to look at this blindly. I mean, we're talking about a historical event. And you gotta do to it what you would do with any other historical event or historical datum. You gotta look at it and assess it. That's why you get the detail from him. And John wants you to know that they're not any more likely to believe than you are. So, here's what happens. 
Sherlock and Watson, all right, make their way to the tomb, and they're funny. Uh, so uh, Peter and the other disciples set out. Now, John calls himself the other disciple. That's how he refers himself to himself in the book. And they go to the tomb. And you know he's writing because he gives you this little clue. Uh, the two were running together, but the other disciple, that's me, John would say, uh, ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first. In case you're wondering which one of us was faster. You know, he gets a lot of credit. I'm faster than he is. Uh, he bent down and he saw, keep that in mind, the strips of linen cloth lying there, as Mary said. Uh, but he didn't go in. So you're going to see a little bit about personalities. We're all a little bit different the way we would approach an event like this or any kind of event. Uh, John doesn't go in immediately. He just sort of stops. Whereas Peter's a little more rambunctious. He's not as fast as John, but he's nuts. All right? So, so uh, Simon Peter, following him, arrived, went right into the tomb, just barged right in. So some of our personalities might do this on an event like this. And he goes in and he sees the same strips, but he sees something more because of his vantage point. He sees uh, the face cloth, which had been around Jesus' head. And it's not lying with the strips of linen cloth. It's separated. And it's rolled up in a place by itself. And uh, the idea of this word here is that it was neatly placed there, which is sort of interesting. Why would somebody neatly fold it there? It wasn't just balled up. And so this is the observation that Peter gets. So you get two vantage points. One's a little further back, one's up close. Now, uh, I want you to understand that the two words, and this is just, I think this is an interesting thing. So John sees, and you know, the Greek has a number of words for, for, for seeing. Uh, most common is a word like blepo. Orao is a word that you can, for seeing. John uses another word a lot and he uses it of Peter here. It's two different words. Theoreo, where we get our word theory or theorize from. So what John is trying to tell you is that Peter's gonna do what you and I need to do about evidence. You need to look closely at it. It's kind of, a, someone said, a scientific word. Look at the data. Think, reason. What would you assess? Because Mary's sort of biased them a little. If I told you that he's already been stolen, that's how you're going to go in there like some is stolen. But now you're going to look at the evidence. And so Sherlock and Watson here are trying to figure out, is Mary's story add up? So what would you think if you saw this? Uh, all right, the grave clothes are there. Someone neatly folded this. All right, so think about it. Who's going to steal this body? Who would steal it? What kind of a thief would come in here and not be in enough of a hurry to be willing to unwrap his body? Do you know there was at least 100 pounds of spices on that thing? Do you know how much time and effort it would have taken if you were trying to steal that body? Would you have taken time to fold the napkin or the face cloth? Would you have taken the time to take the clothes off if you were in a hurry? Probably wouldn't. If you were a friend of Jesus and you wanted to steal the body to create sort of a deal, you certainly wouldn't have unwrapped him because you would dishonor his body by carrying around a naked body. And which of the two of them, if they were going to steal a body, would unwrap it and carry a stinky, mutilated body? Peter's wheels are turning. And in his mind, you could probably already assume he's thinking, I don't think someone took him. I don't think someone took him. Now, that's not taking him much farther, but he's past Mary on his view. And here is what John is trying to get you to do by using, I think, Peter and John, especially Peter here in this word with that word. Belief requires you to think. Jesus nor John is saying to anyone in this room before you become a believer, shut your brains off. Nobody's doing that. That's why 40% of scientists do believe Okay? It's not automatic if you're a scientist, you don't believe. That's not the case. You're not shutting your brains off. That's not what John would say. In fact, what he's saying, uh, faith requires it. Christianity demands that you put your best thinking cap on to assess it. In other words, 
John is going to say, Christianity's testable. It's based on a, in a historical event that any one of us would have to go look at if we were trying to assess truth about an event. So you're invited in the New Testament, listen, you're invited in the New Testament to examine it, to test it. And you're actually told by the Gospels, by the, by the, uh, by the New Testament, Paul especially, to say that if you don't come to the right conclusion, don't buy it. Reject it. If you look at the evidence and it's not enough for you, reject it. Because if he didn't rise from the dead, nothing matters. Nothing he said, nothing he did matters. The whole thing's baloney. You know, we gather here every Sunday because it's the Lord's day. They used to meet on Saturdays in the Sabbath, the Jews. Christians sort of took that habit for a little while. But after the resurrection, they started meeting on Sunday mornings and they called it the Lord's day because it was resurrection day. Because no one's going to show up on Sunday mornings to believe Christianity unless he really rose from the dead. I'm not coming back next Sunday if he didn't rise from the dead. There's nothing in that book worth it if he didn't rise from the dead. And so John is saying, this is the base of Christianity. The true faith must rely on the historicity of the event. Faith has a historic anchor to it. Now, John's not finished. He's about to give you something very interesting about this examining evidence if you were to have walked into the tomb. Here's what he says. And it's, it's just great. The other disciple, speaking of himself, who had reached the tomb first, now he came in. So he went, he decided to go in as far as Peter now. So he's making the same assessment that Peter is. And then he says, I saw and I believed. Ah, so he takes another step. We don't know what Peter's doing. He's just processing. John doesn't speak for Peter. So you get the feeling that Peter's thinking, John sees what he sees, doesn't think Mary's right about a stolen body, not sure what he sees, but he's closer to some kind of truth than a theft. In fact, we know that this isn't full belief, whatever it is, because of the next verse. And John himself tells you the truth. He tells you right here. Uh, We didn't understand yet about the resurrection of the dead. We didn't fully understand. So whatever kind of belief John had, it wasn't full belief. It was genuine belief. It took him a step closer to belief, and you learn that the psychology of belief. Belief is a kind of a process. You got to look at information. You don't just take a leap. It might get you closer, but it cannot take you all the way. You can examine the evidence all day long. It will not get you all the way to belief. Not full belief. These guys guys don't experience it until later. So what does that tell us? what What are we learning by this? John is trying to say there's a rational side to faith. Don't be passive. Get in there and look. I've done something that you can go look at. You can examine the documents. You can assess the eyewitnesses. You can put yourself in their place. And John is trying to say belief is more than thinking, but it's not less. It's more than thinking, but it's not less. So he says, well, what, what, and you think, well, what else is there? If you've examined the evidence and it doesn't get you all the way there, what happens? Well, there's something else has to happen. And that's where Mary comes back into the story. And John wants you to see. And he highlights her in a special way that the other gospel writers don't do. Just for this purpose. To explain how belief works. Now, um, here's what we learn about Mary. Because you wonder where she is. She's like, well, I mean, they ran past her for sure. They got there before her. She probably is standing outside the tomb because they weren't so big. All of us can be all in there. She's probably just standing outside while they're doing their thing in there. You know? And so here's, here's what happens. The disciples come out of the tomb and the two of them go home. And I just think that's fantastic. These guys, they looked at the evidence and said, all right, we're going home. They don't say anything to Mary, nothing. And John's the one writing, he was there. He was an eyewitness, he was right there in the story. And they're just going home. You're like, why are you guys going home? Well, we looked at it, we're processing it. Peter's processing, John's a little closer, but they're going home. You say, well, 
oh, well, what are they doing? Why? Just going home. Well, what are you going to do when you leave here? You're going to go eat. I bet they're hungry. Because that's what happens after Easter. Everybody's starving. After the resurrection, everybody wants to eat. So they went home. And I just think it's a funny thing. But Mary is still overwhelmed. And look at her. You're going to have to put her, yourself in her shoes. She's weeping outside. They're gone. She decides to step into this thing. And you had to bend down to get into a tomb. And then you had to look into it. These are the kind of details you wouldn't find in legendary material. Unless you were there. So she looks into the tomb. Now she's going to look a little bit closer. So she's going to get closer to the evidence. than Jan. And you think in your minds, well, once she gets in there and looks and saw what Peter and John did, she won't think he was stolen anymore. Well, not so. She gets in there and she gets to see the two angels. All of a sudden, one of them appears at the head. One of them appears at the feet. And you would think, oh my goodness, this is about to change everything. Uh, they're sitting where the body was and where the feet, and then uh, they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? And this is Mary. This is Mary's reply. They have taken my Lord away. She still thinks they're taken. He's taken. And I do not know where they've put him. Mary's, she can't get it out of her head. Somebody. Now listen, I'm going to say, this is just so interesting to me. Because you would think, you would think right here that Mary would say, okay, you two jokers, what'd you do with the body? She sees two angels and she's so locked into the fact that he's taken, she doesn't even think something supernatural could happen. Do you know at this moment, right now in history, Mary is the one walking around with more evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead than anyone in the whole world, right here in this moment. And yet she still can't see it. She's so locked into the idea that he's been taken, that's how far-fetched in her mind a resurrection would be. No one was expecting a resurrection. She still thinks, she's so committed to that conclusion. And here's what I want you to notice about it. And this is where it really explains how belief works. Because her categories, categories in her mind, won't let her believe. It's possible. You have certain experiences and categories that won't let you believe. So Mary is a person who's the opposite of what Jesus says to Thomas. She sees, but she doesn't believe. She sees, but she doesn't believe. Jesus says, blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. What is going on? It's just fascinating when you think about how belief works. Now, because it's just another element of belief. Do you realize that right now you might be strongly believing one side or maybe unbelieving and not really be, not really be open to data that could change your mind? We're all that way. It's sort of part of the human dilemma. And Mary pictures it for us. Now, um, you're learning. You don't... You never believe because you see. You're not going to believe because you see. This is Jesus' point to him. Seeing is not believing when it comes to spiritual things. It's a part of the process. You look at the evidence. Christianity affords you that option. But it'll never bring you fully to faith. And so, and, and you, th you watch this. She gets more. She gets more evidence. Not only does she have a stone rolled away, not only does she have the grave clothes, not only did she see Peter and John wrestle with this, not only did she go back in there and examine it herself, she actually sees the two angels. And then something else happens to her, and you think, well, surely this will be the thing that knocks Mary off of this train of thought she has. And it's amazing. She says this, she turns 
So she's inside there listening. I don't know if something got her attention out there or if the angels just didn't give her what she wanted and they're like, she, she says to them, you haven't been helpful enough. Can you imagine in this moment, uh, you two guys are useless. Thanks for showing up, you did nothing for me. And then she walks outside and she turns and I love it because it says she turned around and when she did, she sees Jesus. There he is standing there, but she doesn't know it's him. You've got to be kidding. Is anyone more intense on finding him than Mary? And yet she can't. And Jesus tries to help her. He says, woman, why are you weeping? That's what the angel said. But they, Jesus adds as if to tr- sort of trigger it. Who are you looking for? Think about it. Because she thought he was the gardener. You talk about a one-track mind. This woman can't get it clear. She says to him, believe it or not, did you steal him? It's incredible. And then she's even, she's so locked into the thievery idea that she says, tell me where is it and I'll go steal him back. I'll become a thief myself. (laughs) That is just greatness. How locked into some of the ideas do you have about the most important things in life and you don't see? You can see and not believe. And that was Jesus' point to Thomas. Thomas, the rest of the world won't need me to be here. And you say, why? Why is that? Why is it impossible to see unless he helps you? You'll never see it. It doesn't matter how long you look at the evidence. The evidence will never tip the scales fully. Jesus has to help you. And that's what happens in this text. And Jesus says to her, it's all happens in one word, Mary. As soon as she hears her name, there's like, it's like this flood comes in. And it's fact, it's, it's actually visualized by this again. So the text, John says, Mary turned again. It's not physical this time. This Greek word right here could be used for uh, physical turning. It could also be used for internal sort of a mental shift. And she's already staring at Jesus physically. She's already turned physically. But even though she's turned physically, which is a picture of, I've seen the evidence, but it isn't enough. There's another turning that has to happen. And it is an internal one. It's a mental one. There's some other kind of shift. And it only happens when you meet Jesus personally. It's an encounter. And anyone who's ever given their life to Christ knows exactly what I'm talking about. I was 14 years old. My father spent an entire summer sharing the gospel with me. It wasn't until God showed it to me himself. It wasn't until all of a sudden there was this flooding of personal. You know, Jesus didn't say to Mary, look at the S on my shirt. I'm the guy. He actually used her own name to reveal himself. One commentator, Michaels, I loved it. I love when he said this. He said, the sound of her own name awakens her as if out of a sleep. And that's how every single person in here will tell you if they're believers, they've come to believe. It wasn't because they examined the evidence, even though they did. It wasn't because they looked really hard at it all. It's just all of a sudden, Jesus comes to you in a way that is so personal. And you're overflowed with love and forgiveness. It's unexplainable. And in this moment, John is going to tell you something about faith. On one hand, it's very explainable. You can look at the evidence. On the other hand, it's very unexplainable. And what I love about this text is that Jesus is very content with that. And so this is why this happens next. She reaches out for him. The text doesn't tell you that, but you assume it because he says, don't touch me. And what he really means is don't grab me. Don't hold me. 
Doesn't mean don't touch me. Thomas is going to touch him in the next verse, in the, you know, just a few verses away. And so what he's saying is, don't grab me, don't hold me. Why? I've got to leave. I haven't gone away yet. I've got to go away. I've got to go to the Father. And if you're her, you're like, you need to stay because no one's going to believe unless you're actually here. And Jesus is trying to tell her, no, that's not enough. Evidence is not enough. I could be standing right before you, and it won't be enough. I, you could actually go into the tomb and examine it yourself, and it won't be enough. Science won't ever be able, it won't ever be able to produce enough evidence for a believer. you got scientists who look at, at, at through microscopes and see things no one's ever seen, and they don't see. You've got astrologists who look through telescopes and see galaxies that continue to appear and they don't believe. Science will never be enough to help you cross the line. It'll get you close. But until you have the encounter, and so this is why Jesus isn't worried about staying Because he knows when the spirit of God comes, Thomas, blessed are those who don't see. Why are they blessed? Because the spirit is the one who convinces them, not the evidence. They can look at the evidence. It won't be enough. Even if they're standing right in front of me, it won't be enough, ever. And this is another piece of reality about truth or about belief and what that means. It's unexplainable. And so in this moment, and I think John saves Mary because the other gospel writers talk more about Mary Magdalene. John doesn't bring her up until the end. It's like she's a surprise character because she doesn't show up. She makes this cameo appearance at the cross when Jesus is crucified. And then she becomes spotlighted at the resurrection. You know that there were actually four women who were at the graveside that morning. But John only brings her up. He says, I'm just going to let you see it through Mary's eyes alone. Because I want you to understand something about this truth, this flood. You say, what happens when, when you experience this encounter? What's the feeling? Well, Mary was the one who, remember in Luke 8, Mary Magdalene had seven demons living inside of her. You talk about a woman who was a wreck and a mess. To let her be the one, to let her be the one is is John's way of saying, what happens when you believe is you just, your heart gets flooded and you can't believe it and you realize everything you've ever done, there's nothing you could have done. It doesn't matter who you used to be. It doesn't matter how much evidence you've looked at and it doesn't matter what you've ever done in your life. It doesn't matter what your moral sort of status is in the world. When God comes into your heart, all of a sudden, you feel forgiven. Something on the inside. And on the inside, something changes. And this is what the Spirit does. And this is why Jesus said, blessed are those who don't see. Because sometimes, most times, seeing is not why people believe. It's not until the Holy Spirit comes inside and shows it to them. That's the reason. Annie Dillard said this, I'd been my whole life a bell and never knew it until at that moment I was lifted up and struck. And in this moment, Mary gets her bell rung spiritually that's what happens to believers you can figure some things out but at some point you'll have to be struck and you might be experiencing it now I remember when it happened to me and this is my advice to you in light of what John says about belief. If you're feeling him ringing your bell, go with it. Trust him. Don't wait. 
Don't assume that sometime in the future you'll figure enough out to come to faith because that's not how faith works. And you don't want to mess with tomorrow being the day that he's not knocking anymore. When he knocks, you open the door. If his spirit is driving home the truth to you that he died and rose again for you, because that's what happens, for you. You put your life in that story. Go with it. Don't bank on another day. On the other hand, you might be here and say, well, you've convinced me that I ought to think a little bit more about what I do believe or don't believe because it's possible I'm not letting myself see. And maybe you're like Peter and John and you've got to go home and you've got to process it a little bit more. That's fine. That's terrific. John says there's a place for that in faith. There's a place. And all I want to do is invite you back and go on this journey with us. Go through John and let him continue to unfold this sort of psychology of belief, who Jesus is and what he's done, and see if he doesn't shatter the categories that are blinding you, the categories that you're locked in and won't see, the beliefs that you have that are not consistent with how you actually live. In fact, I'm not just inviting you back. I'm challenging you to come back. Take your beliefs and your unbeliefs and set them out there and see if learning something about Jesus doesn't change your mind the way it has changed the minds of many of us. So I want you to bow your heads. Father, right now, someone might really be experiencing. I know what it's like and it's amazing and it's a wonderful thing experiencing your spirit grabbing a hold of them. And if, if they are, I pray they'll surrender to it right now. Just say, take me, Lord. I'm yours. I believe what you did, and I believe what you did for me. Even though I'm not worthy of it, I trust it. There are others, Lord, in here who need to process more, and I pray for them too. I just pray for at least openness and willingness to do that. The offer's too good. The offer is too amazing to not make sure we've thought through this. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.